God's word that we meditate on this morning is our epistle lesson from Romans chapter 5. Paul writes by inspiration of the Spirit. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not sure who needs to hear this this morning. But God loves you. Yes, you. God really does love you. And I know, I know if I came to each one of you individually later on and I said, do you believe God loves you? You'd say, well, yeah, of course I know that. But if you ponder a little further... The words wouldn't be so quick to jump off your lips. Do you really believe God loves you? All of the time. You. Maybe sometimes you wonder. Maybe sometimes you question. And there's multiple reasons for that, I would guess. You know, one, one big one is, think about the world we're living in today. What, who can you trust? What is a credible source? Which experts can you actually listen to and know that they're going to give you the truth? Right? We become so jaded. What is a credible source? Right? And it's not just the news. It's not just the media. It's not just the experts. It's, it's not just your family and friends who come to you with these things. It's even sometimes because we distrust all those other sources, we begin to distrust maybe what's in the Bible. I mean, it's there. I see the words. It says God loves me, but... But how can I really believe that? How do I know for sure? And maybe more than that, you, you, look at, you look at your life. And you look at the state of this world and say, how can there be a God who loves me? When, I mean, just look at all of the struggles I'm going through. Look at the pain I'm feeling. Right? Look at the unknowns and the, the uncertainties of this life. How, God loves me? Really? Or maybe it gets a little more personal than that. And you start to search your heart. And you think about those thoughts that go through your mind, and you think back to some of those words that have come off your lips, those things that you've done and said that you can't take back. And how easy it is to begin to ask the question, how could God ever love someone like me? 
because from all earthly standards, I am unlovable. Because I, I know what God says in his word. I know what he expects of me, and, and it's nothing but the opposite. You know, along with St. Paul, who says just a couple chapters later in Romans, I, uh, the good I want to do, I don't do, right? The evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And isn't that how we often feel? And we look at our lives and that struggle with sin that we so often fail and say, how could God love someone like me? Because my love for him is so weak and sometimes seemingly non-existent when I think about the way I live and what's important to me. It's easy to begin to question God's love for us. When we have trouble trusting sources, when we look at the state of our world and our lives, and when we look deep inside. But that's why God gives us sections like this here that are before us this morning. In those times when we wonder and we doubt, how could God love someone like me? Does God love someone like me? What do I got to do to get God to love someone like me? We have this beautiful section before us, and, and it's not an easy one. You know, as we read through it just before the sermon here, maybe you're thinking, okay, I get this, I get this, but man, that just went right over my head. This is the book of, the whole book of Romans is what we call, is, we call it meat. It's spiritual meat, right? There's some milk in the Bible, right? Some things that, yeah, I get that, but this is meat. This is it's a little deeper, a little harder to understand. It's something that we got to chew on a little bit, and it takes a little longer to digest. But that's what we're going to do for just a few minutes is break this down. Because what this reveals is how God can love someone like you, and that he does love you. Yes, you! And we're going to break it down in, in, into what we need to hear. Now we can go back to the basics. We can go back to those two main teachings of God's word, which are the law. To remind us, yeah, who we are before God and what we deserve and why we shouldn't be loved by God, but yet so clearly rings the gospel. Good news. Good news of a God who does love you. Yes, even you. This section here in front of us does describe for you what, what, what you already know and what is true in part. It, it, it describes to us, uh, it describes us in, in, in four different ways. Who we really are. And maybe you need to be reminded, but it's not hard to see yourself being these four things. The first thing he calls us is right at the beginning, he says, we're powerless. We're absolutely powerless. And, and the picture here is, uh, in the original word, is, is to, have, to not have enough strength. To not be able to finish. We're just, I can't go on. I, maybe think about a, a sickness you've had, right? Where you just, all you want to do is sleep. You, you don't have power to get up and you know, make yourself something to eat. You would just feel absolutely so weary and wore down. Absolutely no strength. That's what we are by nature. We have no power to make any sort of move to God. We have no strength within ourselves to, to make that first move or any move towards Him. 
And you know that about yourself, don't you? Because you've probably tried. You've tried to earn his love. But you realize you just can't get there. I don't have the power within me. I don't have the strength to be what he calls me to be. And that's, that's holy, right? I mean, God is holy. And if we want to be with God, we want to live with God, we want to have a relationship with him, if we want to be with him forever in his presence, you got to be what he is. And we know I don't have the power to do that. Because I look at my life and it's just failure after failure after failure. Sin after sin after sin. I'm powerless to make any move towards fixing my relationship with God. You know that all too well, don't you? The next thing that Paul's led by the Spirit to, to call us and remind us of what we are is, is he just said, we're sinners. And that we use the word sin and we use sinners so often. And, and so often we don't stop and actually think about what does that mean? What's the picture here? What is God describing to us? And that, that word sin is to not meet expectations, to fall short. A, a, a picture that, that can be used is in archery is you miss the mark. You don't hit a bullseye every time. And that's what God demands in his holiness, in his perfection. He says, live up to my expectations. Not just some of the time. Not just when you feel like it, but all of the time. Hit a bullseye every time. And what do we do? Well, maybe sometimes we hit the board. But usually the arrows are flying all sorts of different ways, right? I mean, that's sin. God has this standard that he expects us to live up to, and we don't. And I don't have to tell you that. Because you feel it. You experience it every single day. The falling short. You read through the Ten Commandments and say, yep, yeah, well, that one I failed on again. Oh, that one too. Oh. That one, many times, we miss the mark. He goes on, says that we are ungodly, which is just what it sounds like. We are not like God. God expects us to be like him. Again, if we want to live with him and have a relationship with him, we must be holy, we must be righteous, and we're not. And you know that. You look at your life and say it's, Certainly not godly and holy and righteous. And the last word he uses to describe us is we're enemies of God. By nature, we're opposed to God. We want nothing to do with God. Right? Earlier in, in the book of Romans, Paul says that by nature we're hostile to God. We want nothing to do with his word or his will or his ways. That's what we are by nature. And, and, and all of these things, which we are by nature... Even though we've been called to faith, even though we know Christ is our Savior, still there's that little piece of us that still resides. We still have that sinful flesh, that sinful nature inside of us that still is powerless to do anything to please God. That is still sinful. That still is ungodly and only wants to do the opposite of what God commands. Is still an enemy of God by nature. That sinful flesh that we still live with and struggle with. Friends, you know this fight all too well. You know this struggle. You know. You know when you look down inside who you really are. You can identify all too well with these characteristics, can't you? But, but in spite of this, 
in spite of, by being by nature and still residing within you, this powerlessness and this sinfulness and this godlessness and that being an enemy of him, God loves you. Think about that. In spite of all this, God still loves you. Yes, you. And Paul so beautifully describes how we can know that for sure. How we can leave here without any doubt in our minds, without any questions, that if God could love someone like me. Listen to what he says right there at the beginning. Verse verse 6 and 7. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Just pause there for just a second. Who in your life would you die for? For whom would you sacrifice your life so they could live? I, I, I'm sure that those of us you know, who are blessed to be married would say, I would, I would lay down my life for my spouse. I would die so that they could continue to live. Any who are blessed with children would more than likely say the same about them. I would rather die than have my child die. I would sacrifice myself for them. In war, there are stories of bravery and heroism where someone has sacrificed themselves, jumped on a grenade, done something heroic to save, to save their brothers, to save their friends. All of these things are things that are hard to do. But we do them anyways because of love. Would you die for someone who hates you? Would you sacrifice yourself for someone who considers you their enemy? Who doesn't care about you? Who doesn't love you? That'd be a little harder, wouldn't it? That's what Paul is writing here. That, you know, someone might die for a good person, right? Someone that, that's, you know, got some qualities that you, you love that person and you care about them. You, you, you might dare, dare to die for them, but, but someone who doesn't love you, who doesn't care about you, your first thought would be, well, why would I do that? But do you realize that is what Christ did for you? He dies for the ungodly. He dies for the powerless. For those who have no good in them. For those who by nature do not love him, he died. He doesn't die because there's any sort of glimmer of righteousness within you, but because there isn't any. He doesn't die for you because you're so godly. He dies for you because you are ungodly. Friends, that's love. That's true, selfless, sacrificial love. God loves you. Yes, you. And he doesn't just say it. Oh yeah, it's all over the pages of Scripture. And he could have just given us this book and said, believe it. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates. He shows his love. And isn't it, isn't it what we long for, too, in our relationships? I mean, it's nice to hear our spouses and our kids say, you know, our friends say, I love you. But don't we want to see it in action, too? Right? Uh, I, I'm a child of the 80s and the 90s. And uh, there was a song around the you know, early, early 90s by the, the group Extreme called More Than Words. Right? And the song is just, it's about, show me that you love me. Use more than words to show me that you love me. And, and we get that. We can connect with that. Right? Because if it's just words, they become empty and shallow and hollow. But, and God knows that about us. And so he doesn't just say he loves us, and that should be enough for us, but he proves it. He demonstrates it. He shows us that while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sin and apart from him, not making any move towards him because we couldn't and he knew we couldn't, Christ died for us. Friends, God loves you. That's you. There it is. Demonstration of his love in his only son. God himself giving up his life for you in your place. But if you're not quite yet convinced, if there's still some doubts in your mind, Paul goes on even further. He says, and now we get a little deeper doctrinally, a little more meaty here. He says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more... Shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This word justify, such an important word. And it's not just a biblical word, it's, it's, a, it's a legal term, it's a courtroom term, right? It, it means charges are dropped. You're, you're, you're free to go. You're not guilty. Whatever punishment you were going to be given, you're not getting it anymore. But it's not that the judge just says, ah, it doesn't matter. We're just going to let this slide. It's no big deal. No, we are justified by blood. Not your blood, but his blood, his innocent blood. The blood of the Son of God himself. So that you could be saved from God's wrath through him. That punishment that we deserved, the punishment for every sin, that eternal condemnation in hell, to, for God to say to us, you have no right to have a relationship with me right now in this life. You have no, no uh, way to, to deserve any blessing, any blessing in this life from me. And certainly in eternity, you have no right to live with me or be with me. That wrath that we deserve of God, both in this life and in the next and forever, God says you're justified by his blood, by the blood of your substitute, by the innocent suffering and death of that one who took that punishment upon himself so that God doesn't have to say, ah, we'll just let it slide. No. Instead, it was placed upon Jesus. And as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is suffering God's wrath on that cross. The Heavenly Father turns his face away from him, and he suffers hell itself on that cross for you. And what do we do? 
What do we experience? We just, we get to, we get to listen. We get to look and listen. To see the Son of God dying for me. And to hear him cry out, it's finished. And to see him give up his spirit and die. So that I could be justified. So that I am not guilty. Because the punishment has been paid. The wrath of God has been stayed. Friends, God loves you. Yes, you. But if there's still any doubts in your mind, Paul's not quite done yet. He says, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Here comes another big term, reconcile. Right? This, this deep theological concept that, that, when you think about how we use it in everyday language, you can begin to understand. Right? When, when two people are estranged, because there's some hurt. That, 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 damage, that relationship has been damaged or, or maybe broken or even seemingly ended. A mediator steps in. Someone comes in and brings those two parties together and says, no. We're going to reconcile. We're going to work to make things right. We're going to fix this relationship. What was broken will be mended. To bring unity and reconciliation between those two parties again. So that there can be forgiveness. And there can be peace. There can be a relationship. And friends, that's what Christ has done for us. Because by nature, we are God's enemies. We are hostile towards him. By nature, we are apart from him. But what does Christ do? He reconciles us to his Father. He comes and he repairs what was broken. He comes and brings peace where there wasn't. He comes to bring unity where there was discord. And how does he do it? Having been reconciled, we are saved through his life. You see, we, we so often focus on the death of Christ and, and how that was necessary for that forgiveness of sins and that justification. And that's true. Absolutely. But just as important as his death is his life. That we know that, that Jesus did not stay dead in that tomb, but rose victoriously to life to be the promise of our reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. That we are saved through His life as He rose and He ascended and He sits at the right hand of that Father to be our assurance that yes, we are reconciled. Yes, even when we sin. Even when we fall into that hostility again. Even when we try to rely on ourselves. There is our risen and ascended Lord Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. That assurance that through his life we have been reconciled to God. That we are at peace with him. That we are his children. And he is our Father. 
And friends, Paul ends this section by saying this is what we boast in. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast because we live such good lives. We don't boast because we're better than others. We don't boast because we try our hardest. We don't boast in us at all. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, as a gift, reconciliation. Our boast and our confidence is not in us, but in what Christ has done for us. In the perfect, unending, unyielding, unconditional love that God has shown us while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, God loves you. Yes, you. There can be no doubt. It's here, words on the page. It's at an empty, bloody cross. It's at an empty tomb. It's at the table in the font. God loves you. Period. All doubt removed. And knowing that love, coming to finally grasp that God would love someone like me, yes, me, friends, it makes all the difference. It absolutely changes everything. Because no longer is your life about needing to try to earn God's love. It's no, it's no longer about trying to, trying to obey him so that you can be blessed by him. No, your life is set free by that unconditional love that God has for you and proven to you and continues to pour out upon you through these means of grace. Your life is set free to live in that love and know that love and share that love makes all the difference in what matters to us in this life. It makes all the difference to us in what we do with our time and how we use our abilities and our gifts. When you know that love that God has for you in Christ Jesus, that reconciliation that is yours, that he has brought you into that relationship and nothing can change that, you're a Christian, you're free. Free to live in that love. Free to know that love more and more and more. Free to go and live it. You know, I do know who needed to hear this this morning. It was me. And I'm sure it was every one of you. Rejoice. Rejoice in this perfect, unending love of our God who says that you're mine right now and you're mine forever. He loves you. Yes, you. Amen.